Bibles, and I hope you do, turn with me to John chapter 20. We're in John chapter 20 as we continue to look at the uh, close encounters of a real kind, of the real kind with the living Lord. Now, uh, there's a handout there back on the table, this half sheet. It lists all the resurrection appearances in the New Testament. And you can see that, that some, we're going through the main ones that are given in great detail. There's other ones that are just mentioned, like uh, the Lord revealed himself to Peter, and that's like a one-line verse. It's a one-line comment. We don't know when it happened particularly. We know it happened on the first Easter, the first Resurrection Sunday, but we don't know anything more about it. And so this gives you the, the resurrection appearances that we're moving through. And so we're going to look at John chapter 20, 19 through 25. Now the chart I have there on the, on the front page of your notes shows you the two appearances that we've already looked at. We've looked at Mary Magdalene, a compassionate Christ follower who has a close encounter of the emotional kind. And that encounter would appeal to those personality types that are popular sanguines. I mean, if you have a sanguine personality and that's your bent and your tendency and your personality, you probably very much were drawn into and enjoyed that story. We've also looked at last week the close encounter with the Emmaus disciples as they were departing from Jerusalem, depressed because things weren't working out exactly. And that's a close encounter of the understanding kind. And it was an appearance that would appeal to perfect melancholies. If you have a melancholy personality, you're a perfectionist, detailed, like the big picture, and yet like running around, touching every tree in the forest. You enjoyed that last week, okay? And notice this week we're going to look at Thomas and the Ten who were conflicted followers. And this is going to be a close encounter of the motivating kind because phlegmatic personalities often need motivation. And that's certainly what Thomas is going to need as we study this. Now, as you see this, there's some fascinating parallels and movements. And I just, I can't develop all those for you, but notice when these happen. Mary was privileged as a woman to for Christ to reveal himself to her, the very first person he revealed himself to. Wonderful privilege, wonderful honor. Early morning, Resurrection Sunday. The Emmaus disciples, you know, uh, Mary's there early morning because she's uh, emotionally, relationally, closely tied to Jesus in a way of purity and it's all above reproach, but she had that relational nature and she wanted to be there early, first thing. We see the uh, Emmaus disciples, they're leaving late afternoon, nothing's turned out exactly the way they think it ought to, they're walking down a dusty road, depressed and discouraged, and then you have this encounter that we're going to look at, Is it's still Resurrection Sunday, but it's late evening, so we've moved from morning, afternoon to evening, and we're still on that first Resurrection Sunday. But notice where they take place, Mary had uh, had lost all hope. And so her encounter happens in a garden cemetery before an empty tomb, a place where hopes go to die. And her hopes had died, and yet her Savior was risen and living. 
the Emmaus disciples are on a road, but it's a road headed in the wrong direction. They're headed away from where they ought to be. It's a path of dead-end reasoning. They are reasoning among themselves. They're trying to figure it out for themselves. They're trying to fit it together, and it's a dead-end path that they're on. Today, we're going to see this encounter is going to take place in a room, and it's a room that's locked from the inside. It's a prison of deadly stubbornness, a prison of deadly stubbornness. So it's really amazing to see how they compare and how Christ, the whole theme of this series is that Christ meets us where we are, but he doesn't leave us where he finds us. And so he's willing to go to the tomb. He's willing to go on the path headed in the right direction. He's willing to meet you in your own locked room from the inside by your own stubbornness. That is just amazing to me. And then how he, uh, he, uh, how does Jesus reveal himself? You see it's written there. You can look at that. Why does he reveal himself? He asks specific questions to each person to draw out from them their unbelief and to draw them into greater belief in Him. And so for Mary, all He has to say is, Mary. All He has to say is, Mary. And that opens up her, her, her heart to belief. For the, uh, the melancholy, uh, the, the Emmaus disciples, he's got to start from Genesis and move all the way to Malachi and explain the New Testament gospel. He's got to go into all the details to bring them on board and, and ultimately to have fellowship with them, opening their hearts. And so he tells Mary, stop clinging to me. Because the second Mary figures this out, she grabs onto him because that's the type of person Mary was. And she said, he says, hey, stop clinging to me and start going for me. You have a purpose to fulfill. After explaining everything to the Emmaus disciples, he finally says to them, look, fools, stop or start believing in these burdened hearts that you have, these deep uh, thoughts and deep gloom and doom that you have can become burning hearts on fire for me. Study. Spend time in fellowship. Seek the membership of other believers. Share the gospel with the lost. Know, grow, show, go. I have a purpose for you. So what are we going to do today? Today is what happens when a peaceful phlegmatic encounters the risen Christ. Well, whatever happens, it's going to be motivating because phlegmatic personalities need motivation. And so let's look here at John chapter 20. And so let's, let's follow along with me, and we will read it together. John chapter 20, we're going to look at verses 19 through 25. So look with me in your Bibles. John 19. And all these, these are all following from, the, they're connected. So Mary comes and tells these disciples, I've seen the Lord. The Emmaus disciples return to this room and tell the disciples they have seen the Lord. And we pick it up there. Verse 19. So when it was evening, on that day, the first day of the week, Resurrection Sunday, and when the doors were shut where the disciples were, locked from the inside. Why? For fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be with you. 
peace, you're freaking me out, right? Okay, they are freaked out. And when he had said this, he showed them both his hands and his side. And the disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord because this was the thing that they wanted. They weren't, they didn't believe Mary and and they, they, they weren't necessarily impressed with what the Emmaus disciples, they wanted to see him. So Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, in other words, if you don't forgive their sins, they have been retained. But Thomas, now here's the key to this week and next week. But Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, which means twin, by the way, so we think he was a twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples were saying to him, so Jesus enters the room, and I don't know if he took a, we don't know. Did he take a bathroom break? I, we don't know. I mean, we don't know. One minute he was there, and then Thomas leaves, and when Thomas leaves, you know, you don't want to miss Sunday church because you don't know when Jesus is going to show up, okay? And so Jesus shows up, Thomas, and, and he departs, he disappears. Thomas comes back, so the other disciples were saying to him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails and put my finger into the place of the nails and put my hand into his side. The, the side had been pierced. So, you know, the, the nail holes, a finger would fit. The side was such that he, he knows. He knows physically how Jesus had died and just how dead he was. And he says, unless I can stick my hand into that side... Notice what he says, unless I can do that, I will not believe. Now, you know, sometimes in social media, when you really want to emphasize things, you put a period after words, right? And that's really what Thomas is doing here. He's saying, I, period, will, period, not, period, believe, period. Now, we'll stop right there. We'll stop right there. Let's look at these conflicted. This is a room of conflicted disciples, ten of them. Judas has defected from the faith and committed suicide. Thomas is missing. It's ten, the ten disciples. And But even though Thomas was missing, he was right. He had the same attitude these guys did. The eleven were believing but doubting. They were believing but doubting. And we're going to see that and develop that. And... They were difficult disciples, and that particularly relates to Thomas. Thomas was not only doubting, but he was being difficult in his unbelief. Now, the structure of this story, you notice we stopped at verse 25, and so the structure of the story is made up of two appearances that happen eight days apart. So the first one happens on Easter Sunday, the second one happens eight days later, which uh, was, was, would still be that following Sunday, I believe, uh, because they counted the days as including one another. Now, notice the account that we just read, verses 19 through 25, it occurs with Thomas absent. The next week, next week, we're going to study verses 26 through 20. 
9, and we're going to see that Christ appears again in almost exactly the same way, in the same room, but this time Thomas is present. So what we're going to look at this week is Thomas being absent. Now let me say one more thing regarding structure and how this is set up in the Bible. So this John 20 account is parallel to Luke 24. We studied Luke 24 last week. And there is a problem with harmonizing these two passages. And I want to make you aware of that. We believe the Bible is without error. We believe the Bible, written by many authors, ultimately written by one author. And so I want to at least point out to you some of these difficulties in the Bible so that you're not shocked when when an unbeliever or a skeptic or a critic brings them up. Are you with me? I want you to know, oh yeah, we talk about those things at our church. I've been exposed to these kind of problems in the Bible. And I've been taught and I've been shown how what appears to be a contradiction can really be harmonized. Okay, And so the parallel passage is Luke 24. And without going any farther into it, I just want to tell you, in Luke 24, Luke seems to be recording the exact same incident, and he says all 11 disciples are present. John very clearly says only 10 are present, all right? And so the, harm, the how to harmonize that and how to prove that there's not a contradiction in the Bible is, is the difficulty. So I wrote this up. I had to do my work on it, and so here's the results of that. You can grab that and and take a look at it. And I would challenge you to take a look at it and read through it so that you realize that each gospel account is writing for a specific purpose. They're dealing with the facts, and they're dealing with them accurately, but to harmonize them is not always easy to do. In fact, they weren't intended to be totally harmonized. Otherwise, God would have given us one account. Make sense? But we don't have one account. But they are all honest and true and accurate accounts. So I just wanted to give that out to you. Now, these guys were conflicted. Why did I choose that word? Conflicted. Because they have all these raging emotions. And we're going to take a look at it. Let's look at it. First thing I want you to see about this appearance is that the ten were locked out of faith in the living Lord by fear. They had locked themselves out of faith Due to their fear. That locked room is, it's a literal room that they're in and it's literally locked, but it's also a metaphor. It's showing us what's going on. Their hearts are locked. They're locked out of faith due to fear. Look back at verse 19 again. Here's the context. Here's the setting for the story. So when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week. Now remember, well, let me continue. First day of week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were, literally locked for fear of the Jews. For fear of the Jews. Now, please understand, they were locked out of an obedient faith. They were locked out of an obedient faith. Why do I say an obedient faith? Because by this time, they have heard no less than four Eyewitness accounts of the risen Lord. Are you with me? These are the handpicked disciples of Jesus. The disciples that he had said, look, I'm going to, I'm going to die. I'm going to crucify. I'm going to be buried three days and I'm going to rise again. And now they have four eyewitness accounts. The first being Mary Magdalene. 
The second being the women that had been with Mary, and they had their own appearance Sunday morning. The third was Peter had a personal close encounter that we don't know anything about, but Peter had already told the disciples that he was risen. And the fourth was the Emmaus disciples. So they have heard four different eyewitness accounts of their own friends, trusted disciples, and yet they're still in a locked room in fear and they have no faith. Because if he's risen, what are you afraid of? Are you with me? If he's risen, what am I afraid of? Oh, the Jews might kill me. Yeah, they killed my Savior. And guess what? He's alive. Go ahead, kill me. My Savior can raise me from the dead. You see, they're not taking the facts. They're not taking the eyewitness accounts and moving them into an obedient faith. Instead, they have all these conflicted feelings. So let's go back to Luke 24. Go back to Luke 24, and let's take a look at some of the emotions. Because sometimes we read this, and we're like, were those guys dumb? I mean, if I was there, I'd be right on top of this thing. You know, I'd be believing and charging out and sharing the gospel. Well, no, we'd be just like they are. Look at chapter 24, Luke 24. Look at verse 11. Their response to... Their response... When the women came and said, we, we, we have heard the announcement that he's risen. In other accounts, they actually encountered the, the living Lord. Here's their response. But these words appeared to them as nonsense. Silly talk. Crazy talk. They're out of their mind. And so there's their disobedience. There, there, there is their unbelieving. But drop down to verses 36 and 38 of chapter 24. 36 and 38. So here's that parallel uh, account of what we just read in John. While they were telling these things, the Emmaus disciples, he himself stood in their midst. But they were startled and frightened and thought they were seeing a spirit, a ghost. I mean, they're scared. They're freaked out. They're shocked. I mean, you would be too. You're in this locked room. You're afraid the Jews are going to come and arrest you and crucify you and turn you over to the Romans to be crucified. And suddenly, in this locked room, Jesus appears. I mean, it's like Star Trek. He just beams down, but it's not like a beaming. He just, one minute he's not, one minute they don't seem, and the next minute he is in a locked room with a physical body. And there's no doubt about it. Because it says, he said to them, verse 38, Why are you troubled? So they're anxious, they're worried, they're startled, they're scared. And why do doubts rise in your hearts? And we'll just go one more verse. See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for the Spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. So you've got to get your mind around this. They're in this locked room, and yet... The risen Lord suddenly appears with a physical body in a locked room. And man, they are, and they're they're convinced this can't be a, a real person. This is a ghost. This is a spirit. And then drop down to verse 41. Oh, I already left Luke. Go back there, Chris. Go back to Luke 24 and look at verse 31. Or I'm sorry, 41. 41. And while, while they still could not believe, believe it because their joy and amazement, he said to them, 
have you anything here to eat? He showed him their hands. He showed him his hands. He showed him his feet, the nail scars in hands and feet. And while they still could not believe it because of their joy and amazement. Now, do you see all these different feelings? You got fear. You got anxiety. You got doubt. You've got joy. You've got a ama- these. They're conflicted. I mean, one minute, ah, it's him, you know, and then the next minute they're saying, I can't believe it. I can't believe it. You ever had something so good happen to you, and you say, I can't believe it, and I can't believe it, and you keep saying, I can't believe it, I can't believe it, and someone's standing there saying, Well, believe it. It's true. No, I can't believe it. I can't believe it. Oh, it's so good. I'm excited, but I can't believe it. Is this really happening? That's the kind of feelings that they're going through. You need to feel that. So they were locked out of an obedient faith, mostly due to fear, but to a lot of conflicted emotions. Number two, they were locked in by an overwhelming fear. They were locked out of an obedient faith, and they were locked in by an overwhelming fear. So go back to John 20. What were they afraid of? They were afraid of the Jews. What were, why were they afraid? They were afraid that the Jews might do to them what they had done to their Savior. Arrest them, turn them over to the Romans, and be crucified. Now, we're often afraid, aren't we, to step out by faith for the Lord. You know, number one reason why people don't witness more? What is it? It's fear. It's fear. And it's the same fear that these guys are feeling. Remember, Mary was told, stop clinging. Start going. There was a purpose. Fulfill the Great Commission. The two Emmaus disciples were taught to know, grow, show, and ultimately go with the gospel. But these guys had a fear of at least three things. Number one, a fear of friends and foes alike. I mean, they had a fear of friends. What would they think of us? What, what fear of foes? What might they do to us? They had a fear. They had no purpose greater than themselves. They were focused on what would happen to me. And I'm telling you, the reason most of us don't witness more boldly for Christ is we're focused. We don't have a purpose greater than ourselves. And so our fear is, what are they going to say about me? What are they going to do to me? I might lose my job. I might lose this friendship. Hey, that's a pretty small purpose in life compared to what we have. Number two is the fear of failure. What happens if we fail? A lot of reason people don't witness more is because there's like, I don't know, what, what if I don't know what to say? I don't, I don't know what to say. What if I'm asked a question that I don't know the answer to? I've never been to Bible college. I've never know, I don't know the Bible like my pastors do. What, that's all a fear of failure. It's a fear of not being successful. It's a focus that has forgotten you have resurrection power to do what God has called you to do. Third, it's a fear of being forsaken. A fear of being forsaken. It's a focus on what will I lose? What could I lose? When you start thinking about what you could lose, you're not going to step out in obedience. And yet, how many promises did Jesus give to his disciples? And he said, look, if you you are forsaken by family, you will have more family here and in the kingdom of God. If you're afraid of losing property or in giving, man, if I put God first in my giving, how am I going to make ends meet? Guess what? God is able to provide. See, they had no purpose. 
They had no power, or so they thought, and they felt like they were abandoned and they would lose too much. So here's what the question. Notice in your notes. What are you afraid of this morning? What are you, not the person next to you, what are you afraid of? What fear has locked you in and paralyzed you to being obedient to the Lord Jesus Christ? What fear is locking you in to your own prison of disobedience? What do you know right now God wants you to be or do, but fear keeps you locked inside? Is it sharing your spiritual journey with someone at work? Is it giving regularly to the Lord in this local church? You're afraid to start consistently giving. Are you afraid of serving on a ministry team? Boy, I don't know if I have the time, the energy. I don't know if I have the follow-through. Is it inviting a friend to church? Is it taking a stand at work? Are you afraid to let go of a pet sin because that sin has become your companion? See, a lot of people don't forsake sin because it's become a part of their identity. It's become a part of their life. Is it being baptized and making a commitment to being a member, joining our church and not just being a tender? Is it, is it stepping up instead of shrinking back? I don't know what it is today, but I know we all come to a place where we come to a dead end. And where fear of failure, fear of being forsaken, fear of what others might think hinders our obedience to Christ. Well, fear, does, fear is a strong motivator usually in the direction of disobedience. Faith is the ultimate motivator in the direction of obedience. Jesus, though, here's the good news. And right now you're thinking, man, it's like he's inside. He's like he's reading my mail, right? He's like he's reading my I mean, I, I, I feel, yeah, I'm trapped and I feel hopeless. Well, guess what? Jesus meets us where he finds us. He will meet you in your fear. Beautiful. Number two, Jesus appears in the midst of their fear to increase their faith by bringing them peace. Isn't this amazing? In verses uh, 19 through 23, look at what he says. Here they are. They're fearful. They're frightened. They're doubtful. And for fear of the Jews, they've got it locked from the inside. Jesus came, stood in their midst. There's a lot of things Jesus could have said. And what does he say? Peace Peace be with you. Peace be with you. And And the meaning's obvious. Peace be with you because I am with you. You may not always see me. You may be locked in by your fear, but I'm right here. with. If you're mine, if you're my disciple, if you're born again, if you're a child of God, peace be with you because I'm present. We see in this path, well, let's go on and read. He says, 19, he says, peace be with you, verse 20. And when he had said this, he showed them both his hands and his side. The disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord, emphasis on having to see him. Was Jesus present before he appeared? Yeah. Was Jesus as much in that room before he bodily revealed himself? Yes. They had to see him. So Jesus said to, said to them again, you're not getting it. Peace 
be with you as the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven. If you retain or not forgive the sins of any, they have been retained. They have not been forgiven. So here we have in these verses three facts, three facts to replace fear with faith. If you are a conflicted follower that's locked in by your emotions and those emotions are hindering you from being obedient as a witness for Jesus Christ, here's three facts. Number one, Jesus is always present in spite of obstacles. Jesus is always present in spite of obstacles. There's no more reason to fear what others might say. There's no more reason to fear what others might, how they might hinder you, how they might hurt you. I, I love, think of this. Jesus is trying to get them to understand that if I am present with you, they can't put you where I can't reach you. Others can't put you. Life can't put you where Jesus can't reach you. And we see that in the book of Acts. They're locked uh, in prison with chains. Boom, doors open, chains drop off, angel releases them. There's no place you are right now in your life where you feel locked in and you can't step forward in obedience that Jesus... And then here's the second thing. They can't do to you what Jesus can't reverse. There's nothing that anyone can do to you that Jesus can't reverse. What's the worst thing that anyone can do to another person? It's kill them. And Jesus reverses death with life. Therefore, don't be insecure. The risen Lord is always with you. Number two, second fact. Jesus always has a purpose for his followers to accomplish. He always has a purpose. I think this is great. He says, peace be with you. And they say, woo, they rejoice. Let's have a party. This is great. Woo, let's just stay in this locked room and rejoice. And he says, no, let me say it again. Peace be with you. The Spirit, or peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. The point is, he gives peace to fulfill his purpose. See, too often, we want to have peace in our lives and have a happy home. We want to have a happy marriage. We want to have, have a happy workplace. See, we just want to have a happy life. We want Jesus so that we can be happy, so that we can have peace. And you know what Jesus is saying? I'm not present with you, and I'm not giving you peace so that you can hoard it. I'm giving it to you so you can be on mission. As the Father has sent me, I'm sending you I'm sending you, unlock the doors and get on mission. And that's why we come to church. Listen, this class is designed to help you to do that. We spent five minutes at the beginning of this class being on mission through prayer. Are you with me? Five minutes in class being on mission, on, on mission through prayer for the Muslim world. You can do that every day. Right? Because he's present with me. And no matter how chaotic my life is, he brings me peace so that I can be on mission. I think that's amazing. And by the way, it's the Father's purpose we're to fulfill, not our own. It's the Father's purpose. Here's the third thing. Jesus 
always has the power to enable his followers to succeed. Jesus always has the power to enable. So he says, peace be with you. Why? Because I'm with you. My presence is with you. Then he gives them a purpose in life. As the Father has sent me, I send, so send I you. Then he says, he breathes on them to receive the Holy Spirit. He gives them the power to fulfill the purpose. Here's the good news. Jesus never never separates His purpose for your life from His presence and His power. He doesn't separate those. If He's present with you, you have a purpose. And you have the power to fulfill that purpose. If you're on purpose for God, realize, depend on His presence. Depend on His power. See, really, there is no reason to stay in a locked room out of fear. Would you agree? And whatever your next step of obedience that you're resisting, there's no reason not to step forward and do that. Number three, this is all good, but this isn't the main point of the passage. Look at number three. Thomas is absent and chooses to be a difficult disciple and chooses to be difficult. Thomas is absent and chooses to be difficult. So in verse 24, all this happens... And John says, wait a minute, verse 24, but Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. Doubting Thomas is not present. Now, we all know, when you think of Thomas, what do you immediately think? Doubting Thomas. Why was Thomas called doubting Thomas when they were all doubting? I already read text, they were all doubting. It was the doubting disciples. So, What made Thomas stand out? How did Thomas get this name? Why call him doubting? It's because his doubting was not due to fear as much as it is who he was and what was going on in his heart. They were all fearful. They were all doubting. Now, when you think about these close encounters, Mary's encounter focused on her emotions, right? She was wailing at the tomb. The, the Emmaus disciples, the focus was on their mind. They needed to be explanation and the study of scriptures. But when we come to Thomas, the focus is on his will. This dude is stubborn. And it's the weakness of certain personality types, particularly phlegmatic, to be very a quiet will, a quiet will, will of resistance and stubbornness. And that's what needs to be dealt with. Why does he, he stand out? Number one, he was a pragmatist. If you study the life of Thomas, it's really amazing. He was very pragmatic. And I gave you a definition of pragmatism. Pragmatism says, hey, if it works, let's do it. You know, let's not think about it deeply. Let's not worry about it. Just, you know, what's obvious? A practical, matter-of-fact way of approaching life. Can anybody relate to that? Um, in John 20, 24, I think the reason, we don't know why Thomas wasn't there, but I think the main reason was Jesus hadn't shown up. I'm not going to sit around here in a locked room with you whiny pants people. I'm out. Let's move on. What good, what are we accomplishing here? This isn't even practical. I'm out of here. That's what I think he was saying. Why do I say that? Well, because in John eleven 16, we're introduced again to Thomas. And 
So Thomas says, uh, it's at, at the time where Lazarus had died, and Jesus says, Lazarus is dead. Let's go to him. And that meant going to Jerusalem where danger was and where death threats were. And here's Thomas's approach. Then Thomas, who is called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. I mean, isn't that the kind of people you want as your fault? Let us also go with him and die with him. In other words, he just looks at it in a very pragmatic, okay, this is going nowhere but death, but hey, we're in it. Let's go die with him. (laughs) <laughs> he liked to deal squarely with the facts. Uh, he's, he's basically saying, hey, everybody just calm down. Leave me alone. Let me do things my way. When something really significant happens, let me know and I may join you again in this endeavor. He was a pessimist. He was a pessimist. Let's go that we may die with him. You know, well, what did Jesus go and do for Lazarus? Raise him from the dead. Let's go, and we will die with him. He's a pessimist, okay? He's a pessimist. Uh, There's another one. There's another time uh, in John 14, 5. All these lead up to John 20. Jesus is talking to them on the night before his death. Where I go, you know, and the way you know. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? What are you, I mean, basically he's saying, Jesus, what in the, you know, we're clueless here. We have no idea what you're talking about. Get practical. What, I mean, uh, what are we? What, what's going on? He was a pessimist. He was a pessimist. You know, he, he uh, an optimist may see light where there is none, but why must the pessimist run to blow it out? A person's life is based on his basic attitude towards life. A pessimist sees a problem in every opportunity, whereas an optimist sees an opportunity in every problem. Thirdly, Thomas was a realist. He was a realist. This is probably the best way to describe Thomas in light of the biblical evidence. Realism is concerned for fact or reality and the rejection of the impractical, Mary wailing at an empty tomb, and visionary thinking, the two disciples who see the big picture. And he's like, wail at the tomb all you want, think about the big picture all you want, The bottom line is, he ain't here. I'm out of here. Okay? Until I see and put my finger and put my hand, I will not believe. In some ways, he was an existentialist. Hey, these are all philosophies that you encounter that people, they may not know what the philosophies are, but this is how they think through life. And Tom, they can relate to Thomas. This is what they're saying when you are witnessing to them. Thomas was choosing to take the position of an unbeliever. That's the saddest thing. When he says, I must see, I must put my finger, I must put my hand on Otherwise, I will not believe. He's, he's taking the position of an unbeliever because in John four forty eight, Jesus said, unless you people see signs and wonders, you will by no means believe. And yet they had seen signs and wonders. Thomas had four eyewitness accounts and he still didn't believe. Instead of calling him doubting Thomas, we need to call him demanding Thomas. So quit calling him doubting Thomas because that's not his issue that's the issue of the 10 he is demanding Thomas you ever witnessed to someone like this they have an objection you answer it 
they have another objection. You answer that objection, they have another objection. And ultimately what they will do, when you have a demanding, stubborn heart, you'll say, unless God meets my conditions, I will not obey. Wow. As one commentator said, he was hugging his unbelief and how he had no idea that what he asked would ever be granted. Unless I have so-and-so, I will not, indicates an altogether different attitude from if I have so-and-so, I will, would have indicated. The one is the language of willingness. The other is the token of a determination to be obstinate, pessimistic, and stubborn. Why did he do this? Number one, he simply chose to. He simply chose to. He chose to make command, uh, demands rather than a confession. He chose to make conditions rather than a confession. Number two, his, his heart was wrong. The issue in all these encounters is the heart. It's always the heart. Think about what he says in verses 27 and 28. First of all, he had a demanding spirit. Unless... Wow, when you say that to God, that's demanding. Secondly, he had a self-centered spirit. My hand, I. There's a lot of I in his demand. Do you see that? I, 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 my, my, my. Third, he had an unbelieving spirit. I will not believe. I dare you. I dare you. I will not believe. And fourth, he had a proud spirit. And we'll see next week that the Lord humbles his proud spirit with a close encounter of the motivating kind. You see, number three, Thomas still needs a convicting encounter. He still needs a convicting encounter with the risen Lord. So this is all the setup for next week. But before we go, I wanted to ask you, what is it that has you locked out from faith? What is it that has you locked in to unbelief? What is it that the Lord is working on your heart and you have ignored the prompting of the Holy Spirit? You've ignored the conviction under the preaching of God's Word. You've ignored the encouragement of other believers. What is it that one thing... And don't think about everything. What is that one thing? I can't tell you what that is. God's already told you. He, he tells me mine. And he'll tell you yours. What you need to do is replace that fear with faith in the risen Lord, who's present, powerful, resurrection power, and who has a purpose for you to fulfill that's greater than your job, greater than your family, greater than everything going right in your life. I know. There are believers among the melee in Thailand. And if you think, and I think we have it rough, think of being a believer this morning in Thailand. Not having a church, maybe not having a Bible, maybe not even knowing another believer, and you being the only believer in your family. Well, i got good news for that Thai person. Jesus is present Jesus is powerful, and you've got a purpose. Now, we're in a whole lot better position, aren't we? So let's take that step of faith.
Let's take that step of faith this week. Today, let's do it. Let's pray. Father, uh, it's exciting to think that we're praying to you as you sit or on your throne in heaven, rule over the universe. And yet the risen Lord, he's right by your side physically, but spiritually, he's right in this room. He's in this room. We've heard him speak to us through his word. We have sensed his spirit convicting us, encouraging us. Father, may we take that step of faith. May we not check out. If anybody's here and they've checked out like Thomas, may they check back in. Because Jesus will meet us right where we are. Lord, most of all, all of us need to take that next step of obedient faith. Let's do that. For your glory, for your honor, we pray in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen, amen. An encouraging word. Pick up some of the handouts if you want them. Read over them. And uh, be encouraged this week.